This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program, and I've been looking forward to speaking with Colin O'Mara for some time. He's president and CEO of National Wildlife Federation. Joining us on our program, talk with us about the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Uh, first of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Bob, thanks for having me on this morning. Uh, how do you describe um, what the fund has, has been about? Yeah, so, I mean, for your listeners, the easiest way is, is if they've ever gone to a park or a, a playground or uh, a state park or a national park or a forest or a wildlife refuge, they've benefited from this program. The Land and Water Conservation Fund takes a small amount of money off of royalties from offshore oil and gas development and then invests it in projects across the country. There's been projects in every single county and across the entire country, more than 41,000 projects um, that have been done through this program in the past 50 years. And what is exactly is happening with this now? So there is a, is a great bipartisan effort in a, in a time where there isn't a lot of bipartisanship um, to permanently authorize the program, which means allow it to kind of be funded. But now there's a big bipartisan push uh, in, the, in, the, in the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate to permanently fund it. Um, the program's supposed to get $900 million a year, um, which is a portion to the state to visit different federal agencies. It's only ever been fully funded twice. Um, and so there is a big push right now to try to make sure that, that those resources are there because at a time when more kids are looking at screens and folks are increasingly living, um, spending most of the time indoors, but, and the need to have great outdoor places for folks to recreate um, is more important than ever. You say it's only been fully funded twice? Yeah, and it's in 54-year in history, um, wow. in 1998 and 2001. And that was really specifically around a couple projects in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem uh, that they were trying to, it was a mine they were, they were basically bought after um, they kind of reached a negotiation that having having <laughs> having pretty significant uh, gold mining operations in the just outside of Yellowstone wasn't really a good idea. Um, but yeah, but only twice in the 50 years. But I mean, this is protecting, you know, is it, am I overstating this to think, this is protecting some pretty important stuff. 
Yeah, I had a, I had a chance to testify um, before the the Senate the other day on this, and I and I said like this, this is how you protect the places that make America America. And you know, in the 50 years since the program started, um, our population has gone up by more than 130 million people. <laughs> we've 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 lost you know 80 90 million acres of outdoor spaces to development and housing and energy development and roads. Um, and so this is like the one program that works across the entire country to try to make sure that those special places are available. So no matter what zip code you you live in, no matter what your income is, you can enjoy kind of the amazing outdoor recreation that um, really just makes America unique in the world. Mm. Wow. I mean, are there, there numbers in terms of what outdoor recreation means like to the economy and things like that? Yeah, it's, it's funny. We didn't start tracking it until about in the, la- in the last 10 years. But it's an $887 billion, billion with a B, um, billion-dollar economy. It supports 7.6 million jobs across the country. And the interesting thing is that these are jobs that are in you know, cities that are close to destinations, but also in some of the most rural communities in the country. These are folks that are you know, running you know, hotels or restaurants or uh, retail shops or you know. Uh, fish and tackle shops or you know, the whole range of support services that are, are needed when folks want to uh, to travel. And it's not just around the you know the big the famous you know national parks like Yellowstone or Yosemite or the Tetons or you know, Zion or Bryce or the, the places in Utah. It's you know jobs that support in places like Jamaica Bay, right? When folks want to go visit the refuge there and they and they they're gonna have a meal or maybe they run a maybe they run a kayak or a canoe. Um, it's all those all those additional jobs that we would not have if it wasn't for programs like this protecting special places for all of us. Mm. We're talking on our program with Colin O'Mara, who is president CEO of National Wildlife Federation. Joined us on our program talking with us about the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Now, this legislation, what's the likelihood if this passes both houses of Congress of this actually being signed into law by the president? I think he, I mean, the interesting thing with the president is that if you can get it to his desk, he's actually signed <laughs> most things, um, because that also means you got through the Republican Senate in the process. And this is one of those pro- programs that's interesting because it does benefit everybody. And so you have very conservative senators from like Western states that are huge champions of, of this program, as well as some of the most progressive members, you know, from the, from like the New York delegation. And so it's, I think it's, it's one of those areas that shows that you know, there are those, there's some things left in Washington, maybe not many, that can still unite us across parties and having, you know, high-quality outdoor spaces and more kids outdoors and, you know, protecting our cultural heritage does seem to be one of those. And, you know, there's still some folks that are concerned about the price tag or, you know, but there's, you know, the, the amount of money we spend on other things in the federal government that really don't always benefit everybody. Um, this is one of those programs that gives everybody a shot to to enjoy the great outdoors. And what role can people who are listening to our discussion today play in this? Yeah, I think, I think New York's benefited incredibly um, well. I mean, the city itself has got, I think, $350 million worth of projects in the last few decades. Anyone that's enjoyed, like, the like the boardwalks and the trails around, like, the Rockways or, like, at, at the um, at Coney Island, uh, like, Comente Park, um, Battery Park, I mean, all these, you know, kind of major destinations um, benefited from this program. And if they get an opportunity, I mean, just letting their 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 Congress, the member of Congress, know. Um, so, folks, Ignatia Velasquez has been on the committee. She's been a leading champion of the uh, of the program for a long time. Um, obviously, Senator Schumer, um, in his leadership role, um, has been pushing for this and been a great champion as well. 
But if they do have a chance to, to you know, reach out to their member of Congress, um, that's always helpful to say this is important because we want to have these great places for the to be protected for the future. Um, there's a lot of new members. For those of your listeners that are kind of northern New Jersey, and a lot of those members are new. Uh, letting them know that it's important um, as they're trying to find their way and find the bathrooms and all the challenges of, <laughs> of being in, in D.C. Um, but I think I think just showing that it's you know this is an American issue. This isn't Republican. This isn't Democrat. And I think most folks want to have strong, vibrant local economies. Um, I think the more they hear that from us, the better. If they want to visit our website, um, it's the National Wildlife Federation, nwf.org, nwf.org. And um, there's information about the Land and Water Conservation Fund, and we can do everything for folks if they want to contact their congressman or send them something on Twitter, and we can help with all of that. Um, but again, this is the kind of, you know, it's, it's the kind of, the, it's a lowercase p politics, right? This is just saying, hey, let's, let's do this good thing as you guys are fighting over so many other things. Colin O'Mara, who is president and CEO of National Wildlife Federation on the web at nwf.org. Thank you very much for joining us and sharing these insights. This is something we're definitely going to be watching. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate your time. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by Cedric Alexander. Uh, Cedric has a career of over 40 years in public service. He served at every level of government as a federal security director in the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, as a deputy commissioner for criminal justice in New York State, as public safety director in a major county, and as a city chief of police and deputy mayor. In addition to having been president of the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, he was appointed by President Obama back in 2015 to the task force on 21st century policing. He's also a frequent contributor to law enforcement coverage for CNN and MSNBC. And he's the author of The New Guardians, Policing in America's Communities for the 21st Century. He's joining us today to talk with us about In Defense of Public Service, How 22 Million Government Workers Will Save Our Republic. Interesting publication. It's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me as well. It's great to be with you guys. This... um, present this publication this latest work what was this like putting this together well it's been in the process for the last couple of years and one thing that motivated me to write this piece is based on was actually based on the beginning of 2017 uh, when we saw a great deal of criticism coming in the way of our federal law enforcement our intelligence agencies across the country and around the globe And it reminded me, having spent 40 years in public service myself, the importance of those career employees and the work that they do to keep America safe every day. And it's just not those federal law enforcement officers or intelligence officers. It's also the men and women who keep our communities safe, whether it's police or fire, or whether it's folks who are cleaning the roadways out there for us in the wintertime, or whatever the case may happen to be the clerical staff, the National Weather Service at the federal level, our air traffic controllers, the 22 million people who make up local, state, and federal employees across this country, including our military uh, folks, I think that we have to recognize and applaud them for the great work that they do, no matter how much criticism they they may receive sometimes even from our elected officials. We also tend to take them very much and take their work for granted, don't we? We do. We take the work that they do. But just think about every morning 
uh, your drive in to work, your drive out when you leave. Uh, the folks who are working on our roadways, our public safety personnel, people who are who are monitoring our movement uh, through traffic engineering. Uh, all these are public and career employees working at some level of government in this country that we oftentimes just totally overlook and really don't think about or give very much thought to uh, the work that they do. We think about our military that's serving us in this country and around the globe, uh, the work that they do, the dangerous work that they do uh, oftentimes. Uh, this book is clearly, uh, for me, was motivated by the fact, here again, myself, who had spent so many years in public service, have been around a lot of men and women who have worked in this profession and who have lost their lives protecting our nation, protecting our communities. Uh, it is truly a tribute to them in the work that they do on an ongoing basis. And sometimes uh, you can never pay them enough for the great work that they do. Mm. Having Elijah Cummings pen the foreword to your book, what was the significance of that for you? Well, I have to admit, it is a beautifully written foreword. And I had an opportunity to meet him back in May of last year, 2019, uh, when I was testifying before Congress. And I was just so uh, overwhelmed by his presence and his kindness and his commitment to public service. And when I had an opportunity to meet him, I shared with him the book that I was, that I was, uh, the manuscript I was getting ready to complete. And it was at that moment that I asked him if he would be willing to review the manuscript, read it, and maybe write a blurb or a foreword. And as you can see, he wrote a, uh, uh, a magnificent foreword that really speaks to the democracy of this nation and his love for this nation and the expectations that we must have for each other if we're going to continue to be a strong nation. So many people have this tendency to cite three branches of government. They point to the founders of this country. Realistically, could they have imagined the role that is played by those 22 million unelected government workers at the federal, state, and local levels that you're talking about? Well, you know, if you think about it, the founders had a great deal of vision, even in 1776. Uh, and here we are 244 years later. Uh, they remarkably had vision to be able to recognize that with the three branches of government, the judicial, executive, and legislative branch, that they had to write a constitution and create a nation where each one of those branches would oversee the other. One was equally as important as the other. It keeps us in balance, even though there appeared to be an unbalance right imbalance right now. Uh, it is to all it is to keep the nation in check uh, when you have three separate uh, levels of government which for the last 244 years have worked for us very well. Uh, however, my book, I have written that there is a fourth branch. And that fourth branch, not being an official branch, 
as written in the Constitution, but certainly one that is important, and that is the people themselves, the American people. We are a part of government, and we are what government is about. We are who government was written for. And that fourth branch, we have a great deal of influence in our communities in our day, on our elected officials, in holding them accountable and responsible to do the things that are so important to keep our to keep our constitution safe and to keep our communities safe. So the fourth branch of government, to me, are all of us, you, me, all of us, the 300 million Americans in this country who also have oversight of our elected officials. And we ourselves hold them accountable to do the job uh, in Congress and at the state level and at the, le- and at the local level to do the things that are important for us. Do you see them exercising a degree of autonomy? Uh, the fourth branch? Yes. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I mean, they can't, but they do have the they do have the power of their votes and uh, the power of influencing their communities with their elected officials. They have the power to hold them accountable. Uh, and they have the power to vote them in or out of office uh, by majority vote. So uh, they're a very significant part of who we are as a nation. We can't forget that. We're a very important piece of this. We are. This partisanship that has been um, a paralyzing factor in politics for some time has obviously many people would say, been heightened in recent years. Um, I believe hyper-partisanship is the way that it's characterized. What distinguishes partisanship, which many people would say has been around for some time, versus what we're seeing now? Well, partisanship is just part of uh, our American way of, of doing business ever since the beginning. Uh, you always had a right and left side of the aisle where they may have differed on a number of uh, ideologies or philosophies as it, rate, as it related to what was best for this country. That's normal. But what we live now, we're in a state of hyper-partisanship where there appear to be very little, uh, if you will, uh, respect for each other's ideas and being supportive of each other for the best interests of the American people. And it's become so hyper-partisan. There's even research out there that even suggests that we're not just divided by gender and race. Uh, There's evidence to show that as a nation, we become very divided by our political affiliation. And that is just so unfortunate for this country because we're much better than that. We're greater than that. Uh, but there is certainly leadership out there on both sides of the aisle uh, that is not doing what they need to be doing so that we can move this country forward. And the unfortunate part of it is they're American people. They want their elected officials uh, to be able to come to an agreement and to resolve and find ways to to, to move this country ahead as one nation. Mm. One of the things that sometimes comes up from people in the executive and the judicial branches of government will say that 
civil service is highly politicized. Um, Mm-hmm. and that most of the workers, they will say, are Democrats. Mm-hmm. Do the facts actually back that up? No, no. You have employees, uh, both at the federal, state, and local level. Uh, many of them are, are parts of, 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 many of them are Democrats, some are Republicans. Uh, but if you were to look at the data, across this country, you will find, and depending on the part of the country that you're in, uh, whether you look at the, here again, local, state, or federal level, uh, those career employees are Republicans, they're Democrats, uh, they're independents, but here again, it may depend on the part of the country that you may live in. But the most important piece, uh, if you put all the data together, uh, it's a, it's a combination of all of us. And it's all not Democrats. Uh, they're all not people who are looking to live off uh, uh, to live off of being a, a career employee. It's how they make their living, but they work very hard at it. And they are both Democrats and they're Republicans. Hmm. How do you respond to those who stop short of calling the fourth branch the deep state? I don't respond to it because it's the most, uh, first of all, it's a very irresponsible statement. There's no deep state in this country. There's no clandestine uh, uh, plan to overthrow the government. Uh, That is all in and of itself is just distraction. And the fourth branch, certainly, when I write about it, when I talk about it, has nothing to do with being a, a, a a, a deep state. It has everything to do with the American people recognizing that of the 22 million people or the 300 million people, I should say, that make up this country, uh, they are, are I what I call the fourth branch of government uh, merely because they have influence. They have influence to vote. Uh, they have influence to they have the ability to to influence their elected officials about what they feel is best for their neighborhoods, their communities. Uh, but these are everyday law-abiding uh, American citizens who only want the very best for this nation and who have an expectation that their nation leaders, their elected officials, will take the responsibility to do what's right uh, on their behalf. But this whole uh, idea about there being some deep state, there's no deep state that's out there. We're talking on our program with Cedric Alexander and talking with him about his book, In Defense of Public Service, How 22 Million Government Workers Will Save Our Republic. Very interesting discussion that we're having. When you talk about the legitimacy of government, there are people who will doubt that you point out something that I think is very interesting. When you talk about those times where um, there have been these government shutdowns and mm-hmm. there are people who are working in government on the federal level, mm-hmm. go, to job, go to their jobs without pay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, they're performing a full day's work and then some mm-hmm. and don't think anything of it. Well, and here again, that's in uh, their attitudes about their job, their love for their nation, 
the ability to still be able to get up when you had a shutdown in this country uh, not too long ago. Uh, your TSA workers, your air traffic controllers, your National Weather Service uh, meteorologists at the, who worked for the federal government, your 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 uh, uh, federal law enforcement, your military, your Coast Guard. These individuals went to work every day, and they just did not miss one paycheck. They missed several paychecks. That park ranger who keeps our parks safe, they did their jobs up until the time that the parks reopened. But there are some parts of our infrastructure in our country we cannot shut down, even when there are politics involved. And we saw these people go to work every day. And then we even saw a nation stand up behind them and start providing them sometimes with food and services. So that even though they had not received a paycheck, they still very diligently came to work. That's those 22 million people I refer to that keep our country going every day, that make us a democracy and uphold our republic. That's who they are. And oftentimes they're overlooked. Oftentimes, they're taken for granted, but you being able to get in your car or on the train or whatever your mode of transportation, during that shutdown, those people still came to work every day. They still made sure that we had everything that we need to do to keep our airways safe, our country safe, to guard our borders, and to be able to do the things that make us the powerful nation that we are. And there's a lot to be said about the American worker and those who go out there at the local, state, and federal level and our contractors and even those in private industry who play a role in keeping our nation and keeping things moving in this country and support our infrastructure. That's what this book is about. That's who it's for. And I encourage people to pick up a copy and share it with a friend because it's about you. It's about this nation. It's about a commitment that people who live in this country have to this nation and will do whatever they can to keep us going. Very well stated. A final question for you, and I think it's an appropriate one, you know, given recent um, impeachment inquiries and the like, with the case of whistleblowers, the protections that are in place uh, for those who speak out against corrupt government practice. Are those what they should be? Absolutely. And we should have whistleblowers in this country who work at every part of government to make sure that we're keeping ourselves in balance. We're not abusing. We're not taking advantage of. We're not being wasteful. And we're not doing harm. And when people see that, they must be able to report it. They must be able to report it without a fear of being retaliated against. But it also has to be thoroughly investigated because we know upon occasion people will make statements and comments that are not true. But we cannot operate without having people who feel that they can come forward and share what they have seen, what they have heard that may put us all this at risk, put our jobs at risk, put our communities at risk, and they must be protected. But whatever they report, it has to be thoroughly and fairly and without bias investigated 
the book entitled In Defense of Public Service, How 22 Million Government Workers Will Save Our Republic. Cedric Alexander, the um, author of the book and our guest in this portion of the program, as I mentioned earlier, is uh, over a career of 40 years in public service. He served at every level of government, a federal security director in the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, a deputy commissioner for criminal justice in New York State, public safety director in a major county, and as a city chief of police, deputy mayor. And uh, he has quite the accomplished background. And thank you very much for joining us and sharing some of your insights on our program today. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. In this portion of our program on the fans, Sports Radio 66, Sports Radio 1019, those of you joining us on radio.com, well, welcome aboard. This is Bob Solter. We shift into a discussion now with Ann Kim on our program. Ann Kim is a writer, a lawyer, and a public policy expert. She has a long career in Washington, D.C., based think tanks working in and around Capitol Hill. She's also a contributing editor at Washington Monthly, where she was a senior writer. And she is joining us to talk with us about a book published by the New Press. It's entitled Abandoned, America's Lost Youth and the Crisis of Disconnection. And first of all, it's nice to have you join us. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. Now, I find this to be a most interesting uh, publication because of the things that you talk about in this book, and we're going to get into talking about them on our program this morning. Um, with all of this concern about the coronavirus and um, its impact, and you know, this is playing out literally every day here in New York City, in America of this virus and this illness, which has just literally exploded across the country and across the state and the city, uh, too. You know, I think of the young people that you write about in the book and think of how it is that they're being impacted and going to be impacted by this illness. It brings me back to a point that I often ask authors on this program. Why did you write this book at this point? So the book is about um, young people who are, quote, disconnected, young people who are not in school and not working. And there are a shocking number of young people who were in this situation, 4.5 million young people between the ages of 16 and 24 who are not in school, not working, and nobody seems to know about it. You know, I did not discover this problem. Uh, that's one of the shocking things to me, that there hasn't been a lot more written about this just huge population of young people who are, you know, falling behind. They're off the radar of our national conversation about opportunity and inequality and the future of our country. And I think it's going to matter a lot more because these are the same young people and many, many, many millions more who are going to be bearing the brunt of what's happening today. Um, you have young people who have been suddenly thrown out of college and young people who are disproportionately working in our restaurants and our retail stores. You know, the four and a half million young people I spoke about was during good times. It wouldn't surprise me if that number has already doubled. There's a mythology in America that if you work hard enough and play by the rules, you'll get ahead and, you know, anybody uh, can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. But it's simply not true anymore. Uh, you know, the young people I spoke to for this book, they were trying their darndest to get ahead. They were trying to get jobs. They had big dreams for themselves. These are not the stereotype of the 
young person who's, quote, failed to launch and is living in his parents' basement playing video games and not getting himself out there. That's not who we're talking about. The young people I'm talking about who are disconnected, many of them are trapped in circumstances beyond their control. Um, they are living in parts of the country where there are no jobs, there are no opportunities, there are no places to go for higher education. They might be caught up in a foster care system that literally dumps them out on the street when they age out, or they may be caught up in a criminal justice system that is really harshly unfair uh, toward young people and young people of color in particular. So what I sought to uncover here, what I sought to describe, are the systemic and structural obstacles that are newly standing in the way of millions of young people and their chances of getting ahead. How would even a few years of being out of work and not in school just completely derail a person's life? Sure. I mean, when you're thinking about that period between ages 16 and 24, um, at least for me, you know, this is when you're deciding what you want to do with mm -hmm. yourself. You know, you maybe have internships, maybe you have that first job. Um, even if you just have a job scooping ice cream at the neighborhood ice cream shop, you're, you've got a boss. You know, you're learning how to work. You're learning to show up on time. You're learning how to get along with your coworkers. You're making connections. You know, maybe your boss knows somebody down the street who, you know, can give you another opportunity. But if you are, you know, and, and for a lot of young people, of course, should be going to higher education in some way and broadening your education, it's absolutely mandatory that you have to have some sort of higher education these days if you want to get a job that's going to pay you a living wage. Now, in those years, if you don't have access to those kinds of professional networks, if you don't have access to higher education, if you don't have access to work experience, you're falling behind all those kids who do. And that can have lifelong impacts on a young person. Uh, there's been some research done by the you know, Measure of America that's been tracking this youth disconnection problem for a number of years now, and it's tens of thousands of dollars uh, per year in um, disadvantage to your lifetime earnings just simply because you don't get that great first job and that great experience, and then you don't match up with the young people who do have that kind of experience. The whole idea of trying to promote a sense of independence is challenging uh, for a lot of the uh, young adults. There's a whole lot of them who are living at home. They depend on the parents for some form of financial assistance. What are the obstacles they're really facing today when it comes to trying to even approach that idea of independence? Yes, I think young adulthood in general has become a lot more challenging, even for young adults who have means. You know, parents, middle-class parents, upper middle-class parents, you know, especially where you are, Bob, in the New York area, know that you've got to invest a lot more in your young people if you want them to get ahead. And that's this phenomenon of, of emerging adulthood that a sociologist named Jeffrey Arnett identified way back in 2004, that people are just taking more time. You know, it used to be a generation ago that you graduated from high school at age 18, you got a job, high school diploma was enough for you, maybe you got married in your early 20s, maybe you had a kid in your early 20s. That's not the case anymore. People need to get higher education. Housing is more expensive. Everything is more expensive. The Federal Reserve did a study finding that one in three 
young adults ages 18 to 24 still gets help with basic bills from mom and dad. Another study I came across that's in the book found that the average middle-class family is going to spend about $50,000 on their young adults up until age 30. And a lot of that is the value of free housing, you know, if they're living with them while they're trying to get on their feet. But the, the amount of resources that are going into young adults actually at this point dwarfs what is going to your kids when they are when they are infants. That's how important young adulthood has become. But if you're a young adult who doesn't have access to that kind of support, either because you don't have parents, you're in the foster care system, or you've been cut off from your parents in the child welfare system, or you have parents who care but who don't have the resources to help you, you're going to fall behind. And it's this divergence in experiences among young adults some adults, young adults are doing great. They've got mom and dad. They've got, you know, safety net. They've got a place to go. Um, and the young adults who don't have those kinds of means, that divergence, I think, is an, a very unappreciated driver of these really large structural gulfs, economic gulfs that we're beginning to see. Hmm. How does geography factor into this, Sam? Geography matters a lot. Um, I mentioned the Measure of America project by the Social Science Research Council before. And if you go to their website at measureofamerica.org, you can see a fantastic map that they've put together um, showing youth disconnection rates by county. And who you are matters where you are might matter even more. Uh, rural youth, you might be surprised. Uh, people, young people living in rural areas are actually much more likely to be disconnected than um, young people living in cities, and that's about physical proximity to jobs and physical proximity to colleges and you know, community colleges. Um, about 41 million people in America, this is of all ages, but 41 million people in America live more than half an hour away from their nearest college or community college. That's pretty significant factor there in your ability to get ahead. Even in New York State, if you look at a map of New York State, um, you'll see counties in upstate New York, like Franklin County, uh, that where the share of young people who are out of school and out of work is 30%. That's close to one out of three young people ages 16 to 24 who are not in school, not working. Maybe New York City itself is closer to the national average of about 11%. And again, a little bit is about proximity to jobs in urban area. But once you get out into the rural parts of the state, you are looking at one out of four, one out of five. And as I mentioned, Franklin County is high as one out of three young people who are missing out on uh, mainstream opportunity. What are the racial and gender dynamics at play here? These structural factors that I mentioned to stand in the way, mm -hmm. um, certainly stand in the way if you're a person of color. If you are a young person of color, you are twice as likely to be out of school and out of work as someone who is not. And the factors that lead to that, you know, are, are you know, fairly obvious once you think about it. You know, there's a lot of structural racism that stands in the way of young people. But you're also talking about decades of policies that have led to residential segregation in the neighborhoods that are predominantly of color, unfortunately, aren't getting the resources so they don't get good schools. One example that I talk about in the book is a neighborhood called Sandtown that is in the heart of Baltimore. 
um, Baltimore is one of those cities that is on the rise, greedy for a long time, but now you've got Under Armour there, you've got an Amazon distribution center, you know, this sparkling area called the Inner Harbor, uh, right on the waterfront. This is a beautiful place to shop and eat and that kind of thing, back in the, back in the old days. Um, but then you have a neighborhood like Sandtown, where if you drive through Lafayette Avenue, you will literally see block after block after block of boarded-up townhouses, just very few cars in the street, um, people you do see, you know, in the middle of the day standing, you know, uh, there's no, there's no commerce, there's check cashers, that kind of thing going on, but no real business. And the high school there is one of the nation's dropout factories still. It's come a long way on high school graduation, but this particular high school still cannot graduate three-fourths of its students. And that is a consequence of decades of legalized redlining in Baltimore segregationist housing policies that, you know, really strip the wealth of neighborhoods for generations, and that's the consequence. There are a number of failures. Um, Some of the most egregious failures are those that uh, literally disconnect young people from opportunity. And again, Mm -hmm. that is the, you know, child welfare system that does just a horrific job of getting young people in foster care ready for independence. That's a criminal justice system, which has way too many young people in it to begin with. You know, adultifies you know, young people who may be making mistakes uh, as young people rather than, you know, they're not hardened criminals at that point. Um, government policies that fail to put the right amount of investment in rural areas so all young people can get ahead. But then also, you know, the programs that are supposed to help young people who are disconnected are severely lacking in resources. We only spend about $2.5 billion a year in federal dollars on programs that are targeted to this population. And $2.5 billion, maybe that sounds like a lot out of context, but keep in mind, we have a $3.7 trillion annual federal budget, and we spend about $570 billion a year on defense. So $2.5 billion to invest in the next generation of workers is pretty paltry. Mm. So those you know, failures put together mean that you have just millions of young people who are going to be decades behind in terms of their opportunities. We're talking with Ann Kim on our program on the fan, Sports Radio 66, Sports Radio 1019. Thanks you for joining us on Radio.com. Ann is the author of Abandoned, America's Lost Youth and the Crisis of Disconnection. Of course, this is a time with the coronavirus where you want to be practicing social distancing and also making sure that you tend to things like washing your hands, keeping your face, nose covered if you were out of doors, especially in some cases when you have to go into retail establishments. You just want to think and um, keep in mind that we're all in this together. New York City is one of those places where there are really a disproportionate share of young people who are in the criminal justice system. You know, in, in New York, 8% of the population is ages 18 to 24 but more than one in five of the city's jail population is in that age group. Um, overall, you have close to, you have about 400,000 18 to 24 year olds in prisons and jails nationwide, and half of these are kids of color. Uh, young people account for a one in four of all arrests that are made, and you have a lot of 
actual kids, like kids who are under 18, who don't belong in an adult jail at all. A researcher named Kara uh, Drennan found that on you know any given day, you have about 10,000 kids who are in adult prisons, and over the year, over a year, 100,000 children are going to spend some time in adult facilities. And, you know, and the incarceration is absolutely catastrophic for a young person. You know, for one thing, there are no educational services. The um, Justice Policy Institute says only about 7%, you know, provide services to help young people when, if they're incarcerated, train for a job or get some education. Young people are much more likely to be assaulted by older inmates. And the worst part is, of course, the likelihood of reoffending. 70 to 80 percent of young people who are reincarcerated are back in the system within two to three years, which means they are going to become lifelong uh, denizens of the system. If you can break that cycle before it even begins, uh, you're going to have a lot more young people who are going to avoid these catastrophic consequences as they age. Would you tell us about the Raise the Age campaigns that are attempting to address that statistic? Yes, so New York is actually one of those states that has begun to to make some progress on this problem of sending very young um, nonviolent offenders to adult facilities or into detention at all. Um, Keep in mind that there is, one thing I haven't mentioned yet, is that there is now, you know, new brain science, neuroscience, is finding that the um, brain is physically not developed until age 25. You know, we've always believed for a long time, and it's still true, that that period between infancy to age five, you know, is really the period that matters for brain development. That's why every middle-class parent's got tons of baby Einstein toys lying around and that kind of thing. What neuroscientists have discovered is that 16 to 25 is about as important as far as physiological brain development. But what's happening there is that the parts of the brain that deal with judgment, with executive function, so to speak, um, impulse control, those are all developing. And I think that has gigantic ramifications for criminal justice reform. And that is part of the reason why there are nonprofit groups behind this effort called Raise the Age, which is to um, end laws, repeal laws that automatically send 16 and 17-year-olds to adult prisons because they are physiologically still children. They are not making adult decisions to commit whatever offenses they have been accused of. They are making mistakes that are in part driven by physiology. So in New York, 16-year-olds are no longer automatically tried as adults, and about half a dozen other states have passed similar laws. Um, There are other efforts to divert young people away from detention centers and away from incarceration. In New York City, there's a fantastic nonprofit called CASES that is working with the court system uh, to divert young people away from incarceration and toward a uh, court-ordered, court-supervised training and education programs. And uh, that's one of the programs I profile in the book. It's just doing a phenomenal job. What might comprehensive in-school career preparation look like? And how early do you think that should start? I think it should happen in seventh and eighth grade, maybe even earlier. You know, many of the young people I talk to in the book and then research out there that looks at why kids drop out of high school, uh, a big reason that's cited is 
I didn't find the work relevant, mm-hmm. you know, and my teachers didn't care about me. Those two things. My teachers didn't look like me. They didn't care about me, and the work wasn't relevant anyway. There is a lot of focus, unfortunately, on getting kids ready for tests, and that does that may not seem terribly relevant. You know, how is that going to help a young person figure out what they want to do with their life, particularly if they're not interested in a four-year college, which seems to be the other thing that many high schools are pushing kids toward. You know, not everybody needs or wants a four-year degree, so there's very little exposure right now to other opportunities, the trades. You know, we actually have a shortage of electricians, you know, in, in the country. Um, but it's not something you, many kids hear about in high school or in advanced manufacturing. You know, being a manufacturing worker today requires some sort of higher education because you're working with computers. And the manufacturers will tell you that they're looking at skill shortages of a couple million workers over the next decade because there are so many other workers that are retiring. It's not a career you hear about in, in high school. The most effective programs... And the other thing is, you know, having that promise of college and career or higher education and career actually does help to keep kids in school. And that's what they've discovered in McAllen, Texas, in a school district around McAllen, Texas, which I also talk about in the book. The superintendent there started offering what's called early college, uh, where young people can graduate from high school with both an associate's degree and their high school diploma. They've got the college credits. And he said that... Daniel King is his name. He said earning those college credits in high school for free was enough of an enticement to keep some young people from leaving high school altogether because they could see a clear path. They knew that it was relevant. They were saving time. They were saving money. And it was worth it to them to stay in school. And, uh, and many of them helped out their families by working. So they saw the practical uh, for many in, in school. And if we can get more high schools to do that, to get more high schools to create a path through high school in partnerships with businesses, um, much more relevant to young people's interests, and maybe not quite as obsessed about tests and standardized test results, uh, we can eliminate the dropout problem altogether. You view the pattern of persistent underinvestment in young people as not only short-sighted, but costly. How so? Yes, it, it is. You know, they say that an ounce of prevention is a pound of cure, and an ounce of prevention in this instance is worth a ton of cure. Um, Columbia University had done some research on the total societal costs of having a single young person disconnected from school and from work, and the lifetime cost of disconnection is about $700,000 per person you know, over their lifetime, um, if they remain out of school and out of work. And that figure includes not just direct costs, uh, if that person becomes homeless, if that person becomes part of a criminal justice system and they're housed there, um, welfare, uh, nutrition assistance, all the public supports. But you're also talking about um, lost tax dollars. If you don't have somebody who is working and contributing to society, you know, you're missing out on the revenues that that person is going, going to bring. And, of course, there's this other indefinable lack of, of, of impact of having someone who's, you know, entrepreneurial spirit and creative potential, everything they are as a whole person, 
we're deprived of as a society because we haven't been able to tap into that spirit. And if, if you read the book, you see a lot of that, you know, spirit in the young people I talk to. You know, a lot of really big dreams, big hopes, big ambitions. And if these kids were able to accomplish just half of what they wanted to, I think our nation would be in a much better place, you know, wasting that potential today. And what would it take for us to put solving the problem on disconnection on the national agenda? What's happening with our economy today, I think, may be part of what it's what is going to push this onto the national radar um, for the, the worst reasons. But the horrific economic pain that we are going to experience is going to fall disproportionately on young adults. The low-wage, lower-wage workers in hospitality, in food service, in retail, the ones who are on the front lines of having lost their jobs, they are disproportionately between the ages of 18 and 24. In fact, a new study came out from Brookings Institution over the weekend um, that finds that one in four of all low-wage workers are between ages 18 and 24. And I was doing a little bit of work uh, researching in the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Um, One in three waiters and waitresses, servers, are between 20 and 24. So are 20% of all retail salespeople. Uh, And keep in mind the unemployment rate among young people between 18 and 24 was already significantly higher than it was for the overall unemployment rate. 12% among 18 to 19-year-olds not in school and double the current unemployment rate, which is what was 3.5% among 20 to 24-year-olds. So if you have young people who are already, as a group, more economically disadvantaged than older workers, now you have this completely catastrophic circumstance that's going to wipe out opportunities for even more young people. We're talking about millions who have probably been instantly disconnected if you count the college students who have been pushed out of their dorms, many of whom are housing insecure, food insecure. I, I really hope that whatever economic packages are coming down the pike will look specifically at the population of young people to make sure that their lifetime economic opportunities are not permanently scarred by the current crisis. And thank you for joining us on our program on the fan this morning. Thank you so much, Bob. I appreciate it. Ann Kim, the author of Abandoned America's Lost Youth and the Crisis of Disconnection, published by the New Press, our guest on our program this portion of it this morning. I'm Bob Salter, joined by David Schoonmaker. David is a founder of Chalkin Social. That's Chalkin, C-H-A-L-K-I-N, apostrophe, social. And the website is chalkinsocial.com. We're going to find out what Chalk and Social is all about. And we're going to be talking about this, um, some might say, lost art of communication, especially in the way that we're going to be talking about it. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, lost art of communication? Isn't communication so much easier with all the devices? Well, hang on for a second. Hang on, because David's going to introduce an idea or two or three, or more on that topic. It's nice, first of all, to have you join us on our program. Thank you so much, Bob. I appreciate it. Now, we're going to have some fun in this discussion, and there are some serious areas to get into as well. But at the heart of this discussion is this idea that there are ways to communicate more effectively 
than most people are doing right now. And at the root of that is there's too much dependence on electronic devices. Is that right? Yep, there's no doubt. I think there's too much dependence on for kids and adults. When you say that, some people are going to say, well, wait a minute, the technology's there, the technology's great, well, why shouldn't we use it? Yep. No, you're absolutely right, and I think technology's amazing. There's great you know, ways to help in education with technology. Technology, obviously, we're on it every day. There's plenty here in this studio that we're looking at today. Um, I think it just needs to be complemented more with more analog tools. That way you could have your unique technology that people will use, but there also needs to be some encouragement to have face-to-face discussions and not utilize technology and to utilize some analog tools and printed materials and things and board games again and playing in the street football and wiffle ball and things that kids aren't doing these days because they're downloading their video games and sitting in their rooms. And, you know, when I mentioned parents are also... You know, this generation of kids have parents who are, you know, 20 years younger than me. I'm 49. So you have, you know, a 29-year-old mom with a 10-year-old kid, and she's on her, you know, iPhone all the time as well, going on Instagram and seeing who's (laughs) liking photos. So, And all of a sudden now, she's not having that in-depth conversation with her son or daughter. So what's happening is... All of these conversations now between kids and adults or kids and adults, adults and adults, kids and kids, they get interrupted. So it's no different than, Bob, you and I having this conversation and we're in an in-depth, great discussion and someone walks right in between us and suddenly just says, hey, I'm blocking this because I just sent this text that came through. (laughs) So all of a sudden mom says, hang on, I'll get back to you, you know, Phil, because I need to go ahead and review this text. And then mom's gone for five minutes and comes back and Phil's now watching it and they never finish that conversation. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. So there's never that fulfillment of a conversation. You never really learn enough from it. And I think that's kind of the conversation needs to have a start and a subject matter and then it needs to have a conclusion. And rarely that conclusion ever happens because everything gets interrupted. And how many times do you go out, you know, in a a previous discussion we had, you mentioned the dinner table. Mm -hmm. You go out and start a discussion at a dinner table and eight people start interrupting. Everyone's checking their iPhones and you leave the dinner so frustrated saying, I don't know one thing about anyone at this table. I'm frustrated. I just want to go home now and bring the two coolest people and actually get to know them. Find out what their life is, what they're about, who they are. And, you know, again, it's probably something with maturing and aging and realizing that the time we have left, I want to spend it with people that help me grow more, that help me, you know, nurture the things that I love where we have similar interests because those are the people then who get together and make magical things happen. And those are the conversations that I'm trying to have now and that I'm trying to help people like teachers, influencers, students to do the same, that, hey, this is not time to use your iPhone in class. France is banning iPhones in elementary and middle school starting in September. I mean, it's just like this is this is not the United States. This is all over the world. And with the removable chalkboard on the hat, you can any language can be written on a chalk and social chalkboard. So yeah, I have an Instagram page. I have a Facebook page. So in a way, it's a bit contradictory to what I talk about. 
But at the same time, I need those to promote the product. But there's nothing more incredible than seeing somebody in Moscow writing something in Russian on a chalk and social hat, which makes you realize, hey, my slogan is get the world talking by chalking. It is a reality. I, mean, I think it can happen. I was in Tulum, Tulum, Mexico, and everyone's writing, you know, writing, everyone writes in different languages on the hats. And that was my goal from the get-go. So, you know, I'm a one-man show. I have volunteers who help me. I have family that helps me. I have friends that help me. But, you know, eventually I'm hoping there's an opportunity where there's different distribution centers throughout the world where everyone can utilize this in the educational system. And maybe people help me refine the product, make it better, suggest other line extensions. Because let's face it, it's not always just going to be about a chalkboard hat. Mm -hmm. I want I want other I want to encourage other companies to create analog tools. I don't need to make money from it. I just want to say, hey, you're creating great technologies. Create something that reminds that child, hey, you know what? Now take two hours off your iPhone, and we're going to give you ten points towards a video game at the end of the year. But you know what? Make three new friends in class today. How about how about create an app? Like there's something that Apple just created. I think it's called uh, Screen Time. And I think parents can input when they mm. shut the phone down. Mm. Well, why not create something, though, that actually makes it more of a game? You know what? Hey, why not shut your, shut your phone down for four hours? But tell somebody in class a story you've never told before. Raise your hand in class and share something. Meet the person next to you in class. Meet the person next to you at the Yankee game when you're there. I mean, it's just, you know, it, it give people sort of make it a game where they're learning because kids, again, they were born with an iPhone in their hands in this generation. So they don't understand. They don't think they're not doing anything wrong. But the fact of the matter is, you know, depression rates are higher than ever. Suicide rates for teenagers is higher than ever. Loneliness is higher than ever. I mean, you know, if you ask people, 50% of our population will admit that they're shy because, you know, you have kids in the room all day on their phones, then they go to school. And then you put, you know, bring them to a Yankee game with 70,000 people and they're holding on to their mom's leg. Like, oh my God, there's so many, like, what do I do? How do I talk? And that's kind of scary when you think about, you know, who are going to be the future leaders of companies? Who's going to, you know, who are going to be the spokespeople? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's all of a sudden, hey guys, thanks for coming out to this talk. I'm going to be texting you from the stage to just look at your phones. I mean, is that what's going to happen? <laughs> so... It's, uh, you know, try to reverse the trend that's happening or at least slow it down because you know what? It's probably, here's another incredible TED talk and I forgot the, the, the speaker, but he essentially says that, you know, people spend, you know, the same amount of time pretty much in the workday. A lot more people, of course, work from home today, perhaps, or they're entrepreneurs, but he's like, let's say 60% of your day is work. Mm-hmm. Uh, 30% of your day is, you know, dinner time and sort of like survival. So that's 90. And he's like, the other 10% is you could do whatever you want. And he goes, if you go back, you know, 15 years, that 10% was filled with 80% of going out with your friends and doing this and that. And 20% of that 10% was on devices now it's just the opposite. 80% of that 10% of time that you could do anything in the world that you want is spent on your device. It's not, 
you know, no one's ringing the bell to get their kids home for dinner anymore because the kids are already in the house on their phones. And, mm. and that's, you know, that's what's happening. And this is everywhere now. You know, I mean, I guess maybe timing was right when I, you know, created Chalk and Social. But I feel like everything I'm reading and hearing is just more and more about the challenges that social media causes. And, you know, it's like you have the investors of Facebook and Apple saying, you know, we knew these devices, these kids would get addicted to the devices. You know, Steve Jobs, I think, said he didn't even let his kids use the iPad when it first came out. Because he knew they'd be on it all the time. Think about that. <laughs> yes, I mean, that, come on. That, that so how about a lot. help yeah. us out, Apple, and let's create some more analog tools. Partner with us, and everyone who gets an iPhone gets a chalk and social hat to at least say, hey, we are encouraging real face-to-face communication. You know, you can't. It's just not enough is not being done. Okay. This idea of face-to-face communication. Yep. This gets into an interesting area because in another aspect of my life, I spend time in the classroom and a couple of different types of classrooms because I've taught in the trade school. I've taught in several different college classes, and I still do. And one of the areas, one of the classes I teach are public speaking and something called human communication. One of the interesting areas. The number of students, because I try to get to know people in the classes, and a lot of them are really put off because day one, I come at them with, I want you to get up in front of the class, (laughs) and I want you you to answer these questions, your name, your major or field of interest, something you'd like us to know about you and something you feel we need to know about you. How white did their face turn? (laughs) I have people who start shaking. Yeah. Literally. And I'm always shocked by the number of people who get up and they'll talk about their name. They'll talk about their major field of interest and they want to shut down right there. Yeah. They're not willing to open up of some, something they'd like us to know about. Oh, <laughs> you know. And then, you know, the, you take the other step. To, well, I don't think there's anything that you need to know about me. I don't think there's anything that I'd like you to know about. Yeah, yeah, whoa, yeah. whoa. It's like. I love what you said because Keo Stark has an incredible TED Talk about why it's important to talk with strangers. Mm-hmm. And it's all about, you know, we're so used to being with a certain group of people where we're only comfortable speaking about certain things. When you meet a stranger, you know, I've been in taxi drivers where they're telling me about, you know, the operation that they had. And it's just like you're sharing different things. And just like, you know, that was their opportunity to share something about themselves with strangers who would eventually become their friends. What I'm more shocked about in schools these days is when I go in and present and I ask, hey, do you mind if I ask you in the corner back there, what's your name? Oh, yeah, my name's Joe. Joe, do you know this person in this corner? No, I don't know their name. I mean, I remember when I went to school, I knew everyone's name after the first couple of classes. Mm -hmm. So even that's changed. And that's, you know, I'm not going to say it's the fault of the educator. It's just the fault of the whole system these days. People don't reinforce the names. And you don't know why? 
I meet you today, Bob, and then all of a sudden, if I'm on my iPhone for the next two weeks, I'm probably going to forget your name. But if I'm not and I keep face-to-face with you, I'm going to remember your name. Right. And that's, it's, it's again, that's another lost art. These kids aren't making friends in class, and that's a real challenge. And for, you know, I know when the last discussion we had regarding uh, some autism discussions, the biggest challenge kids have with autism is making friends. And the way you make friends is to have face-to-face discussions because then you have trust. It's like when I, you know, when I met Amir who helped me with the production of the hats and securing the materials, when we met, there was a trust I had. I now got to know you and I got to know that you teach and you care about kids and with hearing impairment and, and you've done some amazing caring things. I trust you. Like I, like I, I'd love to do something with you in the future. And that's what happens. I don't think people get to a point where they trust each other anymore because most of the things people text and post on social media is not even real. It's, and they're lies. <laughs> I mean, there's, 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 there's been talks that basically everyone just lies about everything now. Right. Because right. they're in a competition. It's mm-hmm. fear of missing out. And I always would joke for years. And then finally there was someone who mentioned the the importance of missing out. And I said, you know, and I wrote on Facebook, I said, guys, I've been saying this for five years. I've been saying LMO. I love missing out. Because then all of you want to know what the heck I was doing. Right? Because <laughs> I already know you were all at that party. Well, I wasn't. But what did I do? It was probably more special. So... It's just, uh, you know, it, 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 it fascinates me. And nice that you're using LMO versus the people who do the LMAO. Yeah, that's, absolutely. That's, 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 <laughs> right. okay. I now, love missing out. <laughs> right, exactly. One of the things that also comes up in the situation with the college students, yep. too, is the number of people who will, if they do start to open up, they're now saying, I have social anxiety. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's like a buzzword now of I have social anxiety. I've, I've, I've been diagnosed with social anxiety. And I'm first of all, I'm shocked at how many are coming forth huh? in that regard. And then I start to realize their communication skills are just, are just not there. No, they're not nurtured with the appropriate communication skills. Yeah, as if, if they in, were, they wouldn't feel that fear in front of other people. Right. In many cases, there's nothing. There's, some cases, there's absolutely nothing that you're starting with. No. No. Nothing at all but a device and not actually communicating with somebody. Right. Right. I mean, you know, it's funny. When I was at University of Connecticut, I failed one class. And that class was nonverbal communication. So I feel like today that was the perfect class for me to fail, and it makes perfect sense because I'm a face-to-face, I want to get to know somebody kind of person. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's just the way to get to know someone more. When you're talking with people about, you know, the concepts behind chalk and social, sure. how has the receptiveness to this changed since the time that you first started? talking about this in other words are you getting a more receptive audience you know it's it's i have never had anyone well okay scratch that i have never had anyone who was a parent who was educated who i've never had anyone say anything negative about it 
except for, let's say, some of the wise guy haters on Facebook who might write something nasty, which, you know, happened. Hey, you know, your hat is the yeah, 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 vulgarity, vulgarity, vulgarity. Mm -hmm. And the guy's name, I remember, was Hugh Mungus, mm -hmm. right? That was his Facebook game. Right. And you know what I wrote? Hugh Rock. And I wrote it on my hat, and I would answer all my replies with a photo of me wearing the chalkboard hat with my crazy hair. And he said, man, that's pretty cool. So, you know, the hat is as cool as you want to make it. I've never had a parent say, that's a bad idea. But I will say at one moment, I was a little bit challenged when I was focusing on autism. Because mm -hmm. then I had some of the hipster kids say, hey, I'm the hipster in my school. but I don't want people to think I have autism. So I was kind of challenged with that a bit where people were like, oh, I don't really want your hat. But then all of a sudden I started making it, well, the hat's for everybody in the world. It just has a very special place in these other areas. And isn't it wonderful to be able to help some of those people? So I wish, I mean, if more people said that's a terrible idea, I wouldn't be sitting with you here right now, believe me. What motivated me was the successful business people that I knew said, man, you really created something amazing. I've had people tell me it's a billion-dollar idea. I've had people tell me, you know, we'd go to restaurants and, you know, there'd be 30 servers and all of us would be wearing the hats. They'd be begging us for the hats and all the servers would be wearing the hats and we'd go back to the house without the hats on. I mean, so, yeah, you know, I have people that I've, you know, tortilla flats and restaurants in New York and mm -hmm. other places. They'll wear the hats and have some fun. But... I've never had anyone say, wow, that's a really terrible idea to get people to communicate face-to-face. -face. I mean, how can you say that? Mm. I have some moms, you know, or, or teachers say we're concerned about sharing hats because of lice and, you know, those types of issues. But I say, but the chalkboards are removable, and inside the kids' hats there's a tag that says, hello, my name is, and they could fill in their kid's name. Mm -hmm. So no one should be taking their hat. Each kid gets their individual hat. And believe me, I know schools have budgets, so there are schools that actually purchase the hats. But where they don't or they miss the budget cutoff, I want to donate the hat. And then I usually say I'll have photo consent forms so if you can get your parents to sign that. You know, if I'm going to give you free hats, I at least need some feedback in return of a video or a photo and something that helps me educate other teachers and parents. And, uh, you know, that's kind of the way it's been going. But I've never had anyone say, well, that's the worst idea I've ever seen in my life. I've had some people say, ah, that's not, it's, that's a horrible looking hat. You know, you should make it different colors and patterns. And I say, well, the whole idea is to, you're the creator. Create the chalkboard. Make as many colors as you want. Make, it's, it is what you write. If you want to be cool, write something cool. If you want to sound smart, write something that makes you sound smart on the chalkboard. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you, you're in control of it. It's just a hat. And inside the hat, you'll see, I mean, it has a world globe that represents the entire world. Get the world talking by talking. So wherever you are, you can communicate. And every country is having the same issues. And every country is finding more and more cases of autism. And they're learning more about it and learning how to treat it and learning what it is. Um, and it's, uh, it's going to continue to expand. You know, Why? You know, you mentioned social anxiety. Mm -hmm. I think that has a lot to do with that kids are just more used to communicating with their phone. They go into a room and they stand in a corner and they're on their phone instead of communicating with kids. 
um, you know, when uh, I had a girl reach out to me and goes, this is the dumbest idea because I have social anxiety. She goes, I can't even look somebody in the eye. And I said, well, how about I send you a free hat? Can Would you at least try it? And you know what? About two weeks later, she goes, you know what? I wore your hat. She goes, it was the first time I was able to say thank you to the pizza delivery guy because I didn't have to look him in the eye, but I wrote thank you on the hat. And I said, that's amazing, right? I mean, that's the beautiful stuff that keeps me going, right? I mean, that's the beautiful stuff that I'm, you know, what are you just, I've invested a you know, decent amount of money into it. Mm-hmm. I can care less that I haven't made that money back because those testimonials and those beautiful stories, I get to talk about that and inspire people. And I think I've inspired some of my friends to be like, wow, I want to do good things. I want to create some kind of legacy and something that stays behind. And I thought of going on Shark Tank and being like, you know what, guys? All of you take 20% of Chalk and Social. I'll just take $1 per hat in perpetuity. You guys... Just take it. I don't want any money from you. Just take the company, run with it, because I know you will make that vision worldwide and massive. And, and, and then I'll go ahead and take that dollar in perpetuity, and I'll write a contract and sign 50% and donate it to the foundation. You know, for me, it's just been, oh, my God, I created a consumer product that people are using all over the world. Mm-hmm. That's insanity. I never, I never expected <laughs> that. I'm no, like, I never thought I was some scientist inventor. I just came up with an idea. But what I found that since Chalk and Social, I think every conversation I have with friends at home now is all just creative ideas. Hey, what about this? What about that? And there's a, uh, you know, a country singer who helps autistic kids sing. And he basically, one child, there was a video up, and he sings Vertigo by U2. Mm-hmm. And I had this crazy idea because I'm like, you know, Mo, I never play an instrument. I love music. And I had this crazy idea to say, wow, what about limited edition airguitars.com? And it's $100 to buy for that, that, buy that gift for someone who you never know what to buy them, <laughs> but you buy them a limited edition air guitar that comes in an inexpensive guitar case with a letter that explains what that limited edition guitar is. And 90% of that $100 goes to a fund that helps autistic kids who are musicians or musicians with disabilities or, or, or missing limb or anything. And it's just, since, since chalk and social, everything that I think about sort of revolves around how to create something just to help other people. And I find now that I'm surrounding myself with people who also are doing the same thing. Mm. When you walk down the street yeah. in New York city, yep. With the hat on. Yeah. What's the reaction? Um, you, you're asked by 20 people, what's up with the hat? Mm-hmm. It all depends what you write on it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you put a big smiley face, people might smile at you. If you write, ask me about my hat, they're going to be like, what's up with the hat? Right? <laughs> if you write, you know, New York Yankees, you might get a Red Sox fan that says, ah, boo. <laughs> you know, it's it really is, it all depends on what you express. You know, I was at, uh, I had jury duty recently. So I was in, you know, the, the quiet jury hall down on Court Street and so quiet on both sides and you're just waiting for names to be called. And then they have a two-hour lunch break. And when I came back from the lunch break, I said, I'm going to wait until everyone's seated. And I came in and wrote on my hat, hey, who took my seat? 
And I walked around and just, everyone just started laughing. And I was like, you know what? It's just what you write on the hat. You know, if you, <laughs> some people just, you could, you could walk over the blank chalkboard and just say, you know what? I'm clueless today. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I mean, it's just, uh, you could draw a picture. You could, and when I think of, you know, uh, you know, new era hats and, you know, people buying 10 different team hats, you could buy one chalk and social hat and just change the team logo and save yourself seven, 600 bucks. You know, buy one $30 hat and just keep changing it. So, you know, there's plenty of unique ways that I could advertise it, but it's just, you know, it's it, 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 the hat is who you want to be. You know, if you're a teacher, if you're an oncology nurse and you just want your patients to smile, draw a smiley face. If you're really expressive, if you're at a rock concert, you want to write the band. I go to a concert. I saw Erasure recently with a, a, a friend of mine. And she wrote E-R-A on her hat, and I wrote S-U-R-E. So together, it was Erasure. That was a band we saw. Lead singer of the band comes up to us, shakes our hand. I mean, that's just magical stuff that happens. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's, it's it, you know, so, hey, I'm creative. Some people feel they're not creative. But I think everybody has creativity in them, and everybody certainly wants to express themselves at times. And this is simply a tool that helps people express themselves. All right. Let me mention something that, again, may seem like this is from the Stone Ages as yeah. a concept of communication. A fax machine? Oh, no, I, w- I, wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't going there. Going, in some cases, some people would reference something further back in yeah. time. A handwritten note. Yeah. Huge. I'll tell you a true story. Yeah. Today, before you came in here, because I was in here early this morning. I told you I get in. I get in here three thirty in the morning. Three thirty. Three thirty. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, I am crazy. Okay. I had the desire to write a note. Yeah. To one of one of my coworkers, and I get a little something just as kind of a hot, a hello and attach this to the little something and uh, lift it in her area. Just saying hi. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Okay. I didn't have the temptation to text her. Correct. I didn't have the temptation to go on the computer and type out what I was saying and print that out and, to me, that doesn't have the same impact. No. No. And I'm going to use that word impact you, you, as the handwritten. I want to agree. And you want to know why? Because look at your phone, and there's 50 text messages waiting for you to read them. Right. Look at your computer, and there's 100 emails that come in. You know, and half of them are below the computer screen that you're not even going to get to. Mm-hmm. There's one handwritten note. There's not a hundred of them waiting in line. So it gets the attention. Right. And it differentiates you from every other message. Right. I had a friend who was uh, interviewing with a modeling agency. And I said, well, how'd the meeting go? And she said, well, the meeting went really well. I said, well, you followed up, right? She goes, yeah, I was going to text them and send an email. And I said... No, I said, go to the drugstore and buy a card mm-hmm. and write them a handwritten note. Right. And I guarantee it will be the first handwritten note they've seen in 10 years. Right. And that's it. And you know what? 
they thanked her. They said it was really sweet, but they were looking for someone who was brunette and not blonde. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is she'll always be in their mind saying she tried to differentiate herself. And there's something else very important that happened. She actually got a response. Of course. 100%. As opposed to that text or that email and it wasn't or whatever. And it wasn't an email or text response. It was like, wow, that was really sweet. Thank you. Yes. Right? You're a good person. Yeah. And it takes the time. And it's like, again, everything's so immediate now. Ah. You know what it is? It's everything's so immediate. So when you send the text, you expect a text right back. When you write a note, I mean, you used to send a letter in the mail, and you knew they wouldn't get it for five days. So for that five days, you were analyzing your head. Wow, is she going to go to dinner with me? Is she not? What's she going to think? Should I not include the picture of my family in it? I mean, it's the things that went through. You were concocting 10 different scenarios, and then when suddenly your phone rang, and she's like, hey, I got your card. I'd love to go out with you Thursday. That was a one-week process that now is that happens in 30 seconds. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Like, hey, here's a picture of me and my family. You want to go to dinner Thursday? Yeah, that's great. Done. Boom. Right. Everything happens too fast. And I think it's hurting relationships. I think it's hurting the dating scene. I think it's hurting the length of marriages. I think it's just, I think, uh, hey, if I meet someone I fall in love with, it's like there's no need for us to be on Facebook and Instagram. I think it's just another distraction from doing what's more important in nurturing a relationship and a family. But everybody wants that instant gratification. They want the instant answer. All right. Again. But maybe they're not getting the gratification from their spouse. Well, that may be Or their their kids aren't getting it from their parents. But if every time your friend walked in the door and said, wow, you look amazing. How was your day today? How was this? How was that? Maybe they don't need as much of that than from the other people that they're seeking it from. You know, hey, that's a beautiful picture. I love it. You know what? You know, and maybe then they don't need to post it to have 800 other guys saying, oh, I like it, I like it, I like it. I mm-hmm. mean, it's just getting out of hand. And I feel like even, I mean, if you want to talk intimacy or interest levels in dating, you know, all of a sudden you, know, you see so much of these photos and these selfies that there's just nothing that differentiates people anymore. It's kind of like I've already seen almost every inch of your body. So it's like, okay, it's not like that person there who's wearing that full-length gown who I can't say anything. I'm more interested in. It's more mysterious now to me. It's just there's too much out there too quickly, and everyone needs everything immediate. I had somebody – I mean, I deleted some people from Instagram because I just didn't know who they were. (laughs) I mean, you know, or they have a different name. And I'm like, okay, so – I delete them, and I had one friend, like, say, I'm crying. Why did you delete me? What happened? And I'm like, I couldn't believe how much she cared. I was like, (laughs) because I deleted you, like, is life now no good? I mean, just unbelievable. People really take it personally. Or why didn't you like the photo I posted this afternoon? I don't know, because I was busy talking with somebody, and I, I wasn't just on my phone all day. Exactly. I mean, it's it's like the expectation is, you know, I'm sorry I took a nap for three hours. I'm sorry I didn't wake up in the middle of my nap and text you back because you said, hey, what's up later? I mean, whoa, that's emergency. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, I, we can have a 20-hour conversation about this. 
And and I don't think anybody ever denies it. Even people who are on social media all the time, they agree it's an issue. They don't want to be on it as much, but they are absolutely addicted to it. And there's a generation that, as you've mentioned, you know, the devices basically came with birth. Sure. All right. It's this is and they came they, they they came from birth and then they were adopted in education right so suddenly kids had iPads kids had computers in college classrooms mm-hmm. it just changed I mean I I don't know I I will admit I don't carry on a notebook anymore with things I do take my notes on my computer but you know even that it was like just the handwritten note it's like it just almost was easier to retain because you knew what. You learned. Right. That's what you wrote down. And then you highlighted it and you memorized it again. But again, kids today don't know that that was any better. And some people fight it and say, you know what? What they have today is better. It's just a matter of how you use it. And that's really the truth. It's like how you use that. So if parents say we're going to limit it to two hours a day and you're only going to look at these educational types of things, well, that's great. But most you know, and, and one of the biggest issues is sleep deprivation, mm-hmm. is that there's so much ADHD these days, and a lot of it's because these kids aren't getting any sleep because they sleep with their phones. Even Sherry Turkle on that, uh, on the uh, Connected But Alone TED Talk, she said, even I sleep with my iPhone, and my daughter does. So she goes, at 4 in the morning, your phone, you know, bings, and your sleep pattern's now off. Now you just woke up and you're sending a text. Then you go back to sleep. No one's getting like that REM sleep that they used to. And I think that's a huge issue in school. And I mean, I know college students are, you know, they're not exactly, they're not exactly candidates for ADHD meds, but they have to take it just to compete with the other kids. I mean, that's really what college has become these days. And it's overprescribed, just mm-hmm. like, you know, antibiotics were for years where any ailment, oh, take an antibiotic where, well, actually, you know what? If you just hold out five, seven days, your body's going to defend it and it'll go away and you'll build up resistance to it. Mm. I mean, so, you know, being in the healthcare industry and helping a lot of these brands launch, sometimes it's a bit of a challenge for me because I feel like I do think things are overprescribed. But doctors are then also challenged with a parent coming in saying, well, I'm paying for this, so right. I kind of expect to leave with the prescription. But uh, you know, I think it's uh, I think ADHD meds are uh, amazing. I know they're now helping kids with autism, but that is kind of you know worrisome as well because there's companies that are going to be creating molecules specifically for different spectrums of autism soon, and I think that's a really interesting area to keep an eye on, uh, and, and that's an area that I would love to you know, partner with those companies in the future. Where do you see us heading with communication oh, over the next? Frightening. I mean, I could say some crazy years. things today, but <laughs> I mean, there are, you know, there's been shows about people already having chips implanted in their mm-hmm. arms that allows them to open up the door and the fob and to, you know, ask questions and get information you have your Google glasses. I mean, you can wear glasses and do things with it. There was actually a recent thing out saying that Google glasses help children with autism. Um, I forgot exactly what it helped, 
but it was very similar to sort of completing sentences or helping them communicate. And I said, okay, so how many families have $1,000 to spend on Google, Google Glasses when my hat is also showing to have some advantages in that and you could spend 25 bucks? So it's, uh, I see it going in a direction that's a little bit frightening, almost to the point where I don't want to get too off subject, but there's a company called realdoll.com mm-hmm. where you can create a real doll that looks yes. like an absolutely beautiful human being. Yes. So you don't have to talk to a real human being. And that could be your companion. That's pretty crazy. It's crazy, and it's also very expensive. Oh yeah, they're like you know ten to ten to fifteen thousand bucks. And the people who are seeking that kind of companionship, if I can phrase it that way, uh, from what I've seen and read about this, uh, the money aspect of it is no problem. No. Um, I mean. That says so many things on so many different levels. Right. Like I My don't want to. I don't want to have intimate discussions with a real person. I'd rather have someone not talk to me at all and just let me. Mm. Whatever happens, happens. Right. I mean, you know. I mean, or maybe they will be able to talk, and you'll program them with only things you want to hear. Oh, you look beautiful. You look handsome today. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's kind of frightening, but I think it's getting to that point. And when you look back at the movies that, you know, we saw 20 years ago and we were fascinated by it when Tom Cruise is writing on the glass and all the images are up, that's happening now. So it's almost like someone knows what's going to happen in 20 years. I'm not exactly that guy, but somebody knows what's going to happen in 20 years. You know, I think it was John Lennon who said, eventually there'll be a day where music is just a guy sitting at a computer. And that happened. That's it. These DJs are all at a computer, and, you know, it's like technology is fascinating. Technology is what allows you guys to do your job with Mm -hmm. your mixing boards and everything, but you just can't lose that face-to-face. And, again, you know, you ask anybody, you tell me one turning point in your life that happened via text, nobody will ever have an answer for you. But you tell me a turning point in your life that happened when you were face-to-face with someone, They'll say, wow, I got that job because I stood in front of a a panel and they loved the presentation I made. And you talked about public speaking earlier. Mm. And, you know, that Mm. to me is that to me is the lost art. As a matter of fact, you know, uh, Mayor de Blasio has a program he's doing. It's like billions of dollars for physical education Mm -hmm. in all the schools. And they say, well, it's really good because physical education is good for the brain and it's good for the body. But there's a lot of kids who just aren't coordinated and really hate physical education. So my feeling was I wanted to meet with Mayor de Blasio and say, you know what, why not call it physical education and social time? So those kids who don't want to play football because they can't catch a football or maybe aren't good at sports or don't like them, Mm-hmm. Can sit around in a circle and just ask each other questions, get to know each other, learn how to socialize again, learn how to communicate. Because if there's one class in school, you kind of can talk without getting in trouble. It was physical education. Right. Every other class, it's like, up, oh, sit in the corner. You know, I stood in the corner plenty of times growing <laughs> up because I never stopped talking. <laughs> when you think of where we are, where we're going. Uh, are you excited? You know, I'm, I'm I'm excited and I'm a little scared. I just, I just wonder what the next generation of kids 
and reproduction of more kids, what will happen? I mean, will people tune out more or will more people become aware and help build exposure to really understand that this is a problem and that, you know, maybe all of a sudden in 10 years, there will be a hundred new analog tools that are always offered with a new technology or a new video game or a new something. So I have hopes that these big companies who almost, I would say, I don't want to say they want people to get addicted to it, but they know people are getting addicted to the technology. It would be really great for them to step up. And rather than just creating screen time and things that are still done on the phone, to create things outside of that, that complement it and just encourage hey, you know what? Instead of being on your phones today, let's play Scrabble at the dinner table, Mm -hmm. right? Let's play things that are educational but still fun. I mean, I have a whole stack of board games in my home, and maybe twice a year someone walks by and says, oh, let's play that, right? It's just that used to be fun, you know? My grandmother used to always play Mahjong with the girls, and they would, you know, they'd talk, and I'd play Scrabble with mom, and it's just... uh, Whatever, Monopoly, any game, it was just you would talk and you would play. That's gone. Kids aren't in their front yards anymore playing wiffle ball or football in the street. That's it. They're just not. And I don't really know the statistics of, like, you know, community sports, uh, you know, but, you know, from what I can tell, I think Little League Baseball, Midget Football, all of those sports I think are declining in population because kids are just, you know, finding ways to – Spend time laying on their bed, just on their phones, getting, getting inaccurate fulfillment. Mm. Right. It is something definitely to think about. Um, David Schoonmaker is the founder of Chalk and Social. Our guest, Chalk and Social. That's all. This one word. dot com website. There's a lot of information uh, there as well. In a closing thought, word to the wise, I guess, here. Screen time versus face-to-face time. How can we find a balance? Uh, that's, really, that's really the key. Screen time right now, you know, that 10% of the day that we have to do anything we want, mm-hmm. 80% of it is now spent on screen time. <laughs> and I think the balance is a matter of parents just really reinforcing rules. You can't have your phone at the dinner table. You know, after 9 o'clock at night, put your phones away, get a good night's sleep, and spend more time getting to know people. And all I could say is I think I've turned around some of my friends who were spending a lot of time on their phones, and when they had a unique experience with Chalk and Social and actually met somebody new, and I'll bring up an example, a friend of mine, Rob Lykoff, he runs a food truck. He was a very successful businessman, sold his company, always had a dream to run a food truck. He said to me, David, he goes, I have never, ever gotten a woman's phone number in 55 years. And Rob, if I'm getting your age wrong, I apologize right now. (laughs) But he said someone came up to the Opa truck, and it's Opa on the go, so a great Greek food truck. And he said a woman came up, and she wiped off the gyro comment that I had on my hat, and she wrote her phone number on it. He goes, it's the first time that's ever happened. He goes, I'm a believer. And then all of a sudden, he and all of his team, they, they they give out the hats from the truck. They give it to, I mean, it's just, 
it just, you know, incredible. So all I could say is when people wear it, something magical will happen. Maybe not immediately. Jen Friel, a friend in California, she was helping me uh, with the hats for a bit. She said, David, I was newly single. She goes, the first time I wore the hat to work, I wrote single for now. She goes, in 30 seconds, someone stood up and said, hey, would you like to have dinner as he, as she was walking to the bathroom? I mean, that's no kidding. And it's, I have a hundred stories like that. And I would just say to anyone, you may not love it, but if I gave you a free hat, would you wear it? And just let me know if something interesting happens. And a hundred percent of the time, they will tell me something interesting happened. Someone came up to me. I met a girl. I met a guy. I talked to someone. I had a great conversation. Well, what did you write on your hat? Well, I wrote this. And you know what happened when I first started promoting the hat? I would have pictures of hats on the website that already had chalkboards drawn on them. So people would look and say, well, I don't want that chalkboard with a caterpillar on it. I'm like, well, that's a six-year-old kid that drew the caterpillar. The chalkboards are blank. You draw whatever you want. So it's just, you know, magical things will happen whatever you write, right? And that's really the case. You know, I, I always envision a shy kid in class sitting next to a girl that he has a crush on. It's a commercial I, I would love to make. And he comes in class without a hat on, and he just can't even look over at her because he's too shy. And 50% of people say they're shy, especially kids, of course. And the next day he comes in with his chalk and social hat on, but there's nothing on the board, and he still doesn't look at her. Third day he comes in, he writes, I like you on the chalkboard. And he just glances over at her. And then they leave class holding hands. Mm -hmm. I mean, that to me is just a beautiful, real scenario that can happen. Because it's happened to me. I I write, you're beautiful on the hat. And I'll be at a club. And the music is so loud I can't hear. And I'll look at a girl and I'll point. And she'll come up and give me the biggest hug. Because I just told her she's beautiful. I mean, it's another. It's just like you saying the handwritten note. It's another way to express yourself. I have friends in fights with their spouses and said, David, I used your hat and said, honey, let's get over it. I love you. That's it. The fight is now over because he used a creative way to apologize. Right? And, and, and that's it. It's just getting out of the box and being more creative and overcoming some of these challenges. And we all have communication challenges, right? Right. It's not just kids with autism. It's not kids with social anxiety. It's all of us. Someone might be shy when they just want to talk with a girl or a guy or, you know, someone who they feel maybe is more intelligent than them. But everyone has that, and this gives you that vehicle to overcome that. David Schoonmaker talking with us on a program. Thank you very much. Certainly good luck with your efforts, too. Bob, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Wonderful uh, discussion and an awful lot of fun as well. I agree. Thanks. Have you downloaded the Radio.com app? Well, what are you waiting for, an invitation? The smart thing is to get the app now. One of the reasons why it will be very apparent. We'll see you at 6 next Sunday morning. Have a great day, everybody. I'm Bob Salter. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. 
Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.